Hi, hi. This is the Pursued Playbook Podcast, the show about Black women and women of color making bold moves in corporate and entrepreneurial spaces. Pursued is the coach in your air, pushing, encouraging, and inspiring you throughout your journey. I'm your host, Aprilene Alexander, founder of Pursuit. On today's episode, we're going to meet Nina Vital, or as I like to call her, the Queen of Rest. Nina is a product and technology innovation executive who has been working in the luxury fashion industry for over a decade. She's worked with the likes of Net-A-Porter, Farfetch. This conversation with Nina was timely for me as she's someone who understands the importance of a pivot and also understands the importance of rest. If you're at a crossroads in your career, trying to make a pivot, struggling with the idea of taking a break, and unsure how to navigate these conversations, stay tuned. This is for you. Let's meet Nina. Hi, Nina. Thanks for joining me today. You look lovely in red. I hope we get some video from this so that <laughs> we could show it off. Um, we, we were just talking about the name of this episode, and I've called it Rest is Revolutionary. And you were surprised that I identified you as the Queen of Rest. But I'll, t- I'll tell you this. Every <laughs> time somebody's going through you know, some sort of work thing and they're wondering like whether to leave or whether to go, I always reference you and it's like, listen, I have a friend called Nina and she navigates her exit so that she has some time off. It's usually the summer. And then she starts in September. She's all fresh and new, motivated and whatever. So take a leave from her book and take the risk and get, you know, navigate that. Fix it this way. And I've always admired that about you, that you have, you, you take rest in between roles and it's important to you. And I quite like that. So that's why. Yeah, no, you're right. Yes, I guess it is not the normal thing to do, which is why it seems kind of like, uh, you know, an, an, like a novel idea to, to to many people. But I think the thing that you said, which is the key, is I navigate it. I navigate my exit such that I can take rest. And that's a key component of it. I've always negotiated to not work my notice period, or there's been some other package available, whether it was like because of a redundancy or something that enabled me to be financially secure enough during that rest period. I think that I'm not ignorant to the fact that not everybody has that luxury. So I advocate for rest in between roles, but I would advocate for doing it in a financially secure way first. And you've never been afraid to shy away from having those conversations. How, how do you approach them? And what makes you not afraid to go like, well, you know, I'm leaving, so I need to negotiate some rest. I'm not working the notice period. You know, what, how do you show up to have those conversations? I don't, I think the first time it happened, it wasn't my doing. So the very first time, so the first time I took a significant break between roles was when I left Net-A-Porter and before I joined Harvey Nichols. And that was because we went through a restructuring that enabled me to take redundancy and that was the first time I realized that, oh, this is nice. But then I think that like the theme of rest and just taking time out and not working like nonstop has always been there for me. Like I started my career at Accenture in the US and there you got five weeks of holiday, which is considered very, very generous in the US. It's normal here, but there it's not normal. 
but you would have people that didn't take their holiday. Like they were given five weeks and they'd take maybe two or three. And I just thought that this was absurd. Like I was always the one that was like running out of holiday at the end of the year. I had five weeks of places to go and and countries to visit. And, and so I think that and maybe it's just because I, I, I place as much value on these outside of work experiences as I do in. And then that time I took in between Nap and Harvey Nichols, I realized like, oh, you need this. Like you need a little bit of time to reset. But I obviously had the security of knowing where I was going next and having had been paid out enough to my three month notice being paid out so that I could um, not worry about income. And then from then on, I've always said, when I'm switching jobs, I'm taking a break. I figure out how to like, negotiate the exit or, you know, if it meant dipping into my savings for a month or two, I would do it because otherwise you just don't get the time. You don't get those opportunities to sit around and do nothing if that's what you want to do, which is <laughs> what I'm doing a lot of now. <laughs> but but you just, you need it. You deserve it. Like our, our life is not work. And so unless you financially need to, uh, you don't, like I would not recommend just hopping from one thing to the next. So talk me through the end of your undergrad experience and your choice of IT and going into Accenture and to where you just left Farfetch. So I guess like the first thing that people always like notice about me is my accent. It's like stuck in the middle of the Atlantic somewhere. I was born in the UK and moved to the States when I was 11. So I finished middle school and high school there. In high school, I took my first ever uh, programming classes, Pascal back in the day. But I was also doing a lot of sewing classes. It was like a home economics class. I loved it. I was like made my prom dress senior year. Like I had this kind of dichotomy between this love of like fashion and this love of not love, but a skill in math and, and, and computer science. So when I was looking at where to go to university, I really was like debating, am I going to try and get into fashion design school or am I going to go study computer science? And obviously coming from a Asian immigrant family, you know, there's like a, there's cookie cutter careers that you are slated to do. You're either going to be an engineer or a doctor or this, uh, as we spoke about previously, this applies to any, (laughs) most uh, immigrant children. But I think my parents potentially would have been open to me going to fashion design school. But in the end, I realized that I have no artistic ability. My ability was all in the construction and the pattern making and the very technical skills. So I wasn't going to make it in fashion design. So I went to study computer science. I ended up getting into Carnegie Mellon University, which is like a top tier university in the States for the subject. And it was hardcore because back then, you know, studying computer science, they were training computer scientists. They weren't training the developers of the future. They were training the computer scientists of the future. So it was very, very deep and and deeply technical. But I managed my way through. I supplemented it with like business classes. I also continued to sew and like do fashion shows and make garments for those. So I kept that kind of connection, that kind of creative side alive. And then when I graduated, it was figuring out what I wanted to do next. And Microsoft and Google were heavy recruiters at the university, or a lot of the students just went on to go and get their master's and PhDs in computer science. What I envisioned a career in computer science to look like was sitting in the computer lab 
all day, all night long with the people that I had been studying with. And this did not appeal to me. We didn't have like a, you know, the idea of management information systems, the idea of product management and things like that. They just, it wasn't the reality yet. They didn't have a name yet. So, you know, hindsight 2020, I could have gone and started working at Google in like 2005 and who knows where I'd be now. But I actually started applying for like technical jobs in banks and professional services companies because thinking that that would be the good balance between using my degree and and having exposure to business and something a bit more uh, that would use a bit more of my personal skills and social skills. And so I ended up taking a job at Accenture because I figured that consulting was a good way for me to get stuck into a lot of different things. I joined the Accenture office in Atlanta and it was honestly a fantastic like first entry point into the workplace. I think it really cemented a lot of skills that Keep, that I keep with me today and are often recognized as setting me apart from peers, things like stakeholder management, upward management, presentation skills, being able to structure your thoughts in a really concise way. And, you know, consulting firms at that in the analyst and consulting years is a bit of a cult, like all of your friends are also consultants, you're traveling together, you're partying together. It was great. I really enjoyed it. And because I had a degree in computer science, I was also like the best developer uh, that was in the team. And so that was also obviously very um, rewarding. Uh, So that's how I got to Accenture. So I was doing well at Accenture. And, you know, like I kind of the political side of things worked for me. I knew how to move up. I knew how to I'm good at networking and and forging good relationships. And so that's a skill of yours. You have you are very good at it and we'll talk about it a bit later. <laughs> uh, so I could have continued to do well there, I'm sure. I just didn't love the industries that I was working in. I was working in a lot of telecom and high tech and public sector. I actually came to the UK for three years off and on to work on some public sector projects here, which gave me a taste of being back in London as an adult. And I tried to move into the fashion industry within Accenture, but it was a very small practice, primarily based out of Milan. And so it just wasn't, it, it, it just wasn't happening. And because when you're good in a certain, the way that it's structured, you know, people want to retain you like where you are yeah. because they want you in their practice. I started trying to figure out, okay, how can I make this move if I wanted to? And this is actually, a lot of people ask me, like, how did you make this, this jump? How do you move from, you know, one industry to another? I was very tactical in it. I I can't think of another word, but I literally looked at what skills do I have now that can just be transferred over to the industry that I want to be in. It's not about making like too many moves or trying to, you know, completely change everything in one go. So what I looked at was, okay, I've got, I've gained a lot of skills in my consulting career, but one of them is project management, right? I've been doing a lot of managing developers, managing teams, managing programs of work. And the technical side of the luxury fashion industry was e-commerce. It was still like a hugely growing business. It was quite early days. And the names that were recognized at the time were Net-A-Porter and Gilt. And there was also a creative agency in New York that I had come across. So I just applied to those three places and I applied for project or program manager roles so that I could directly attribute what I knew and what skills I had developed into that industry. 
I applied for a job at Netaporte in New Jersey, New York, um, and the interviews went really well, but I ended up not getting the role. So I stayed at Accenture for like another year. And I saw the same role being posted again, but this time in London. So I found the rejection email that I got. I emailed the recruiter back again and I said, I feel like our interviews went really well. I see that you've got the same role open now in London. I'm coming for my summer holidays. I'd be happy to come in and interview in person while I'm there. And they took me up on it. So while I was here on summer holiday, I went in for two interviews with the uh, with my boss and then with the MD of the business that I'd be working with, the outnet. And when I got back to the States, they offered me the role. And I remember I went into the partner's office to and sit down in front of him. And I said to him, Dan, I've got something to tell you. And his face just went like, no. And I was like, yeah, I'm leaving. And he was like, to go do what? Because he was like, if you're going to like Deloitte or to one of the other consulting yeah. firms, you know, he was he was not going to be happy. And I was like, I got a job working in like the in luxury fashion e-commerce. And he was like, oh, oh yeah, that makes sense. You're like, good luck. Because <laughs> he, he knew he and, and I've got lots of anecdotes about the style and whatever else. But he just knew he knew that that's where my passion was. He was really really supportive helped me exit as quickly as I could because I needed to pack up my life. I needed to rent out my house. I needed to move to the UK. I needed to just, you know, do the triple jump, as they say, in business school, uh, change location, change role and change industry. And so that's what brought me to the UK and into like luxury fashion e-commerce, which has continued to evolve into luxury, um, uh, physical at Harvey Nichols. So I got the opportunity to really learn about how department stores work there. And then e-commerce again, but very different marketplace at Farfetch. And at Farfetch is where I much more started to look at innovation around the customer journey and around how we use technology in ways that can really impact the customer's shopping experience online, offline, wherever they're going to be. And so it's just been a series of roles since then that have just all, you know, given me another little piece of the retail puzzle. And you've gone through, it's almost as though your career has gone through an evolution as the customer journey is going through its evolution as well. That's what's exciting about working in that space is that you have to stay on top of whatever ha- whatever is happening that's new and looking at how you use that new technology to shape out the customer experience. And so it's like part and parcel. My role is to define how these new things are going to change the luxury shopping experience. And Nataporte, also known as Nap, you joined Nataporte at a really sweet spot time when mm. it was new. It was the place that everybody wanted to be. And how did that, you know, shape you and your career? Yeah, it was. It was like prime time. I joined in two thousand and eleven. I left in 2014. It was when uh, Natalie and uh, Mark were still running the the day to day business and the and, and show. And I I think of it as for me it was it's like the MBA of luxury retail. And because I was in a program management role, I was working on projects across all different parts of the business. I mean, one of the projects I did was launching our first own brand, Fashion Label. 
Another one was helping the warehouse team figure out how they were going to manage during the Olympics because the warehouse was in East London and roads were going to be closed. And we offer, you know, same day delivery and next day delivery and all of these things. And another one was a complete like replatform of the website um, onto a new CMS content management system and translation of the website into three different languages. So I got to really understand so many different parts of how e-commerce works. And then on top of that, Netaporte is a wholesale buying business. So it's not a marketplace. They actually go out, they buy the product, they mark it up, they sell it out. They have stock that they are holding onto that they need to sell through at the end of the season. So you learn all of that. So, I mean, it was an amazing time, amazing leadership. And this was the time through all of this transition, you start to do your MBA. I remember going into Mark Seba, the CEO at the time. Uh, he's passed away now, so may he rest in peace. He was he, he, he was always very like pragmatic. And so I remember going into his office and being like, Mark, I think I want to go get my MBA. And he was like, you don't need an MBA. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? And he was like, everything you need to know, you can learn here. And I was like, mm, okay. <laughs> like very entrepreneurial, right? Like he's not the only person that thinks this way. And I was like, okay. I was like, but there's some things that like, I just don't dig into in my role. And he was like, leave it with me. And he actually came back to me with a project (laughs) where he wanted me to work with Stephanie Fair, the MD of the Outnet on figuring out a plan on how we bring the Outnet to profitability. So it was digging into like all of the finances and like uh, the cost lines and understanding like what we can do. And it was a very like MBA style project. And it was fun and, and we did it. But then I went back to him and I was like, but yeah, no, Mark, I still want to go get my MBA because there's still stuff here that, you know, like I see that there's a lot more that I could be doing here, but I don't have like the, like the, the, the academic discipline. Like, I don't know like the structures and I haven't seen how many other people do it because that's the thing about an MBA is that it really is just a bunch of case studies about yeah. just shows you that every company goes through the same things just everybody thinks that they're Mm -hmm. special and that they're the first time going through it, but that is never the case. And so in the end, he was super supportive. He actually like uh, wrote my recommendation letter to go and, and help me make it work. And so that three and a half, four year period was actually really huge for me. Same. I was getting like the MBA in the industry that I loved at the same time as getting an MBA in the, in the real context of a, of an MBA. And so it was a real period of like uh, high growth and, and, and high learning for me. There's always this question about the value of an MBA yeah. and people still aren't sold on it. And I, I mean, my experience, we, we both went to different schools and I met you whilst I was doing my MBA. Mm-hmm. I just feel as though like it's such a good experience to see exactly what you said, case studies in real life that you get all the theory and the frameworks behind it so that you understand what's going on into the workplace. And do you feel as though like that point in time in your career was so pivotal to do it, that that was the right time? And how did you balance that? Because you did it part time. Yeah. Like, I think that my, my response to this says a lot about me. So one, the value of an MBA. For me, an MBA is a name and a network. So if you're not going, Mm. and so many people are not going to enjoy this, but if you're not going to a top 10 or top 20 and getting a name, and a network and access out of it, 
unless someone's helping you do it for free, like I don't, I don't see the value in it. So I had thought about getting my MBA the first time when I was at Accenture, because in the States, people generally go when they're like 26, 27. But then I was just, I honestly was like, I don't really want to just be spending all of this money to be around a bunch of other people that don't really know what they want to do with themselves. So I decided to keep going, keep working. And then when I got to Net-a-Porter, it was like, I just saw that I had an environment in which I could really use and practice whatever it was that I was going to be learning, right? Because you don't learn mm-hmm. until you put it into practice. And because I had yeah. access to so many different people, so many different styles of projects, I knew that I could really test out what we were learning in real time. The other thing was that I wanted the name. So and I wanted to stay local in London. So there wasn't anywhere that I was going to go other than London Business School. I didn't want to stop working because I didn't want to lose that income. And I was also on a, I was in the industry I wanted to be in. I was on a trajectory that I thought made sense. So I didn't feel a need to, to take a break from working. And I knew that a big part of the MBA is the extracurricular activities, the networking, the access to like speakers that come in the evenings and things like that. And so for me, it needed to be in London because I needed to have the flexibility to go and also do those things. And I knew that I was in a role at the time that I could manage really well and I would be able to take on the additional workload. So it was very like, again, tactical, strategic, and it really did work out that way. I had people from my work come and be speakers at classes at business school. I used are I used, you know how when you're in a class, they want you to use a real life like case study or somebody has to pick their company. Yeah, yeah. I would always offer to do it with our company and people are into it because people think that luxury fashion is glamorous and they think it'll be a fun project to do. And I was fortunate to be working with people that would be willing to be interviewed and be part of that. So it really was this like two way I was able to really utilize work in my schooling. And I think that NAP from some of the th- work that I did benefited from the fact that I was um, there at the time. I think the, the decision is is really important and you should know what you're getting into. Well, it's a big financial commitment. Now, yeah. the next question is, do I think it helped me in my career? The answer is no. Yeah. I do not believe that the <laughs> degree itself has been instrumental in the roles that I have gotten since. However, I grew so much personally over that time. It was the first time that I was introduced to any kind of personal development, which now it's like, I think is so important. First time I was introduced to any kind of like personal, like, uh, like executive style coaching. And I have a extremely close network and friend group from business school who work in completely different industries are exposed to completely different things than I am. And it's so valuable to have those perspectives in my life. Um, and I'm really good friends with so many people that I studied with. Uh, and so, and you can argue that all of those things, of course, are part of me and therefore are part of the career and the way that I handle myself in my roles. But just in terms of the degree itself, is it a prerequisite for any of the roles that I have taken on since? No, which is different for people that may be listening that are in financial services or in professional services. You know, those roles often have the prereq, 
you need your MBA before you do yeah. this, or the company supports you in getting your MBA before you move on to the next thing. But for the industry that we're in, I, it's, I don't think it's ever been a, a factor. So you've done your MBA at NAB, you've moved on to Harvey Nichols, Harvey Nicks, and then after Harvey Nicks, you move on to ePortal. Yeah. So when it comes to experiencing failure and setback, what do you wish you had done differently? What's your thing? And using this, using your ePortal experience to answer this question, because I think it's such a valuable lesson and, and I knew you going through that and I've seen the growth and the change and the way that you handled yourself through it and I, I think it's something that people should hear about. So after a couple of years at Harvey Nichols, one of the things that I was finding, I had gone to Harvey Nichols in a program management role again, but I was responsible for launching their international e-commerce and I was responsible for forecasting that entire PL and setting it up, but I wasn't then responsible for the trade, um, the like the BAU uh, trade. And what progression looked like in e-commerce at the time was that trading element. It was the owning the PL. It was, you know, everybody talks mm. about you need to own a PL. So owning a PL was being like an e-commerce manager or digital trade manager. And nobody was giving, like I I, I tried, uh, I applied for the role and I just wasn't getting those roles. They didn't see me um, in that. They saw me as very effective in program management, uh, fixing problems, basically getting shit done, right? But mm. I thought that external opinion um, meant that progression looked like taking on these like trading roles, these e-commerce roles. And so operational roles. So I was like, how am I going to get operational? Also, there's a lot of buzz around startups at the time. And so long story short, I got connected to an amazing founder through a VC. And the business was a B2B marketplace for interior uh, furnishing accessories, not fashion, but a very closely related industry. I liked, um, I liked the business. I really liked the founder. And so we went in, I decided to take the role and I took a VP of growth role. Now I always ask people, what do you think VP of growth means? And they look at me blankly. And that is exactly <laughs> what happened is we didn't really understand what a VP of growth meant, but we could see that like I was good for the business. Like it was good to have my professionalism, my energy, my organization there. So we reshaped the role into a VP of operations role. And I was responsible for accounting, legal, finance, uh, office management, a sales team at one point, uh, customer service, all of these different functions. And I really just like tried my best to power through. I had no network in this space. And so I didn't have anybody to talk through things with. And I'm a person who likes to talk through uh, challenges. I was the second most senior person to the CEO for quite a while until we hired in some other C-level people. And so you can't go to your boss with all of your issues and with all of your concerns. Mm. And so it was just a very, it was a very lonely place. And I didn't feel like I was excelling and performing at my best. And I didn't really know how to solve that. I didn't, I hadn't seen 
while I feel like I had worked in an entrepreneurial place, which was Net-a-Porter, I hadn't been there at the early, early days where it's all pure hustle, right? And I hadn't seen hustle. Because in, in consulting, you don't hustle. There's formulas for mm. how you get things done. And so I didn't have like that kind of behavior to emulate. And I didn't know, like, it, it, so that's one of my lessons in hindsight. Like now I know how to hustle. I've seen it. But back then, I didn't know that you just go and talk to people, you know, that I just go seek out people. Like, I don't know. It, it just wasn't, it's not naturally in me. It's not the way that I was raised and schooled and, and whatever else. Did you feel as though you were an individual contributor? But you you felt like an individual contributor, but you weren't because you had a team. But it felt a little bit isolated. I had so many functions that I was both, right? So I was a people manager when it came to like customer service and sales teams. But I was an individual contributor when it came to legal, accounting, HR, you know, and a number of other things. So it was I was wearing many, many hats, none of which were things that I would previously skilled in. I did in the towards the end, I found a network of other COOs and VPs of ops in startups around London who are amazing, but it was too late at that point. I was completely burned out because when I feel like I'm not performing, I'm not one of those people that's like, you know, feels this surge of I'm going to prove you wrong and I'm going to do a great job. I just go into this like downward spiral of just not feeling like I'm mm. doing well and feeling demotivated. And I was, I went straight down into that downward spiral and you were there, you remember. And so it came to a, it came to a head when I actually asked for a, uh, I asked about like kind of when was I going to get promoted and when was I going to get a pay rise? Because I felt just so undervalued for the amount of effort and energy it was taking to do this role. And I knew that, the thing that's always been important to me is taking care of the people. So I knew that people that worked for me were happy, but I also knew that like, for whatever reason, like the role that I was doing wasn't exactly where it was expected to be. And I cared a lot about what my boss thought about me because I thought that you're supposed to care a lot about what your boss thinks about you. And yeah, we went into yeah. the room, I had this conversation about a pay rise and she actually was very like astute. And she goes to me, Nina, I don't think that you're looking for a pay rise and a promotion. She's like, I think you're just not happy here. And you're trying to figure out a way to make it feel like you're going to be happier here. And I was like, yeah. And I remember at one part of the conversation, but this sticks with me now. I said, I just like, I, I just don't feel like you feel like I'm doing a good job. She's like, why do you care what I think? And I was like, because you're my boss. I have to care about what you think. But this is very telling. And this is very telling about yeah. the difference between an entrepreneur and someone with that, like, kind of that, that, that spirit in them and someone like me. It's like, like they don't care. Like, they're, they're, their value is not driven by what other people think about them. Yeah. Whereas mine always was because it was part of my upbringing. It was always, you know, be better, be, be the best, like, uh, get the accolades, get the, the, the affirmation that you're, that you're doing well. Yes, it's that first generation or migrant sort of programming or brown and black people programming where you have to be the best, you have to work harder and you have to, you know, you, you have to get those accolades as uh, examples of you 
succeeding and doing well. And it's just playing in the background and influencing our lives. It's, it's wild. Yeah, I ended up leaving. She actually recommended a personal development course, like this four-day intensive personal development that um, she had the company partially pay for, that I went off and did at the very beginning of my leaving, which was really transformational. And then I took the rest of the summer off, took my rest. As you do. (laughs) And then I got to the end of the summer and still didn't know what I wanted to do. The course basically told me that I should be a consultant for the luxury fashion industry, working on like projects and working on new things. And I didn't want to hear it because I was still in this like, no, but because of my education and my progression thus far, you know, I should be COO of a of a fashion tech startup, or I should be CEO of this. I still had this like in my, you know, in my head, really more dictated by what I thought other people would expect me to be doing. Mm. Got to the end of the summer, I needed to obviously make an income. And I had a lot of my network from my previous fashion roles were working at Farfetch. And so I was keeping in touch with them. And many of the women that I've worked with are now mentors that stay with me. And they had a project that they were working on that they wanted me to come in and they, they needed support on, on delivering it. It was a program manager role. And I was just like, oh my God, here we go. Like, I'm never going to escape this. I'm going back into program management. But it was interesting. It was working on a new uh, in-store technology with Chanel. And you're not going to really turn that down, are you? And so yeah. I was like, sure, I'll come in for four months and I'll, and I'll help you guys with that. And I went in and it was the first time I'd ever contracted. It was the first time I didn't care about my title, didn't care about what the next step was. We were just here to get this delivered. Didn't care if it was Farfetch or Chanel, whoever was the problem. We're getting through this and never been more effective, never been happier, never have understood the value that I was bringing more clearly. And it just turned into that me feeling that way and, and and having that in me just resonated externally and my performance got recognized and I ended up staying um that project got extended I ended up coming on to some other projects but you ran permanent at some point in time during this period yes after about like mm, almost two years there was a restructuring happening I was helping um my boss think about how that restructure should look And one of the pieces in it was that they wanted to have a refocus on innovation. And I didn't see myself as part of the org. I was still on a, on a contract with them. Mm. And I remember I went in to speak to one of my other mentors, Stephanie Fair, who is still at Farfetch now. And I said to her, well, if we do this reorg, right, there shouldn't be a place for me in the org because nothing should be needing fixing. And I'm a fixer. And she goes to me, Nina, you're not a fixer. She's like, you're a leader. The only way that you're able to fix all of these things is because you're able to lead all of the people in getting to the into the resolution and in coming up with the solution. And so I took that away. And I also just started to think about, well, what do I want to do? I was like waiting for someone to tell me if there was something for me. And I was like, well, what do I want to do? I was like, I like product. I like technology. I like working on new things. I like just doing things and handing them over. I don't like running things forever. And so I was like, I should do innovation. Because the problem isn't that 
I'm not like the big ideas person. I'm better at it now, but I'm still not like the blue sky dreamer. But that wasn't the problem. Everybody had ideas. The CEO had ideas. My boss had ideas. Like everybody around like the team had ideas. The problem is that they weren't executing. Nothing was getting done. And I know how to execute. So I went back and said, I'd like to run innovation. And I'm going to make sure that we put a structure and process in place that we actually are executing, that we're actually testing mm. new things. And we're actually building things to a point where we can bring them to market. And that's how that happened. And so since 2020, right as we went into the pandemic, March 2020, I took the role as director of innovation. And until Stephanie had told you that you're a leader, did you not think of yourself as a leader before no. that? No, because I had always thought that like, I thought that I was a leader in other things. Like I knew I had leadership skills and I did a lot of extracurricular activities and I was a leader, but in the workplace, no. Why not? Because I'd associated leader with getting all of those roles that I never got, you know, and I didn't, and for whatever reason, I didn't see program manager as the leader. I saw it as the the fixer, the enabler, but not the leader. The leader was the person who owned the business functions. I don't know. It was just, it was probably just in my head. I'm glad that you have gotten rid of that because you are a leader. I want to talk about your ePortal experience. I want to find out if you realize in that role, you were constantly taking all of this external feedback and just shape shifting. And I felt as though over the course of nine months, you had had so many different identities under this role. Like, that, so were you surprised when you were burnt out? And did you know that that was happening to you? It's interesting that you said that you felt like I was just constantly shape-shifting. Like I just didn't have the confidence in these subject areas, in these, in these areas of responsibility that I have had at the time, which is like number one lesson learned. I'm never taking responsibility for those areas ever again. Right. Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah. like, let me, let me stick with what I know and what I'm good at. Yeah. Like that's like, uh, that's definitely something that I got out of that. But I felt like, um, I think when I really realized that I was getting, that it was getting quite bad was when, oh, this is going <laughs> to, it was dating actually. But you know, when you first meet someone and you just have all of this small talk and in London, it generally revolves around like who you are, what you do for work, you know, yeah. and because and because I always work in like industries or startups that people think are interesting, you know, they want to hear about it. I stopped dating because I didn't want to have that small talk about what I do for a living. I just got really insular and isolated and I didn't want to talk to people because I didn't want to talk about that because it was just so depressing. Hard. I wonder if people recognize that my experience and from the experiences of people who have experienced burnt out, that one of the things, one of the symptoms is just cutting off your social circle and just reducing yourself so that you have this singular focus on work because you think like, okay, if I really give like 250% of myself, then it's going to change. And then, you know, everything's going to get better. And then I'll open myself up again when it's really the opposite. You're just burning yourself out even more because your community and your support structure isn't there. And I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. 
Yeah, I mean, there were a few people that obviously stuck with me through the journey. April, you were one of them, and I relied heavily on that support system. But all of the like the peripheral socializing done because I just didn't want to have to have a conversation about how that was going. And that's when I really realized, oh, this has really changed me and not in a in a good way. Right. Yeah. And I have to give credit to the to the CEO for also you know, recognizing it and just, and just, you know, kind of saying the thing that I didn't have the guts to say myself at the time. I want to reintroduce Russ because I, I, I just think you do it so well. You know, I, I just think that you do, and it's probably not what you want to be identified with, but you, you, I think it's part of your self-care routine, if, I, if I'm allowed to say that. But you left Eporta and you, you had another period of rest. And why, why is rest so important to you? And, and have you always had this as a value? I've always loved to sleep. So I remember <laughs> in university, like I, you would not catch me doing an all-nighter. Like I was in bed, right? Like I was like productive during the day and I was asleep. Like you would not catch me in the computer cluster all hours of the night unless like the assignment was due and my partner was making me stay there. Like I, so I think I've always just known that I am a person who requires sleep in order to function well and will be very grumpy without it. So, I mean, obviously sleeping is part of rest and that stays with me today. You know, I'm, I will proudly show you my Fitbit app and the eight hours of you sleep will. that I get every night. <laughs> And then for the rest periods in between roles, I just think this because work isn't life. And while you're working, I 100% believe that you should be giving it your all. And unfortunately, we work in a society and a culture where that's, you know, 40 to 50 hours a week. So it does take up most of your time whilst you are in full-time employment. I idolize the people that have this, you know, flexible freelancing consulting thing all worked out like and have more flexibility. But I just I don't I just don't operate that way and haven't taken those types of roles. And so for me, those periods in between, you need like I just feel like you need them for yourself. Right. Like you did. you, Mm. You dedicate so much to work while you're working. And obviously, I find balance in in those moments, too. But you can't to the extent that you do when you're taking those breaks in between. Um, It doesn't have to be three months, but even just taking a few weeks to just, you know, reset and, and spend time on yourself and spend time with friends and family and, you know, going visiting like elderly family in the middle of the day, because you can't do that when you're working. And when you're working, like, I feel like your social life feels so constrained into those two days, Saturday and Sunday, like you have evening things, but Perhaps that's why I feel rest is so important because there's so much outside of work that is important to me that I maintain a healthy connection with. Let's talk about negotiating an exit. Uh, any advice as to how to go about doing it? Because you've done it a couple of times and you're good at it. And you're good at it because you take actionable steps. And I want to give our listeners a little bit more information about that. So. Tell us about negotiating an exit. 
I mean, negotiating on negotiating your exit. One, just ask, can you have a shorter notice period? Like, don't just make it a a given that you're going to have to work out your whole notice period. Depending on what's happening within the company, I've been through a couple of restructures. So at that point, I could just easily turn around and say, well, you're restructuring. So you clearly don't need this role. So you clearly don't need me to stay. I've also left where I've just like handed in my, my notice. There are times where actually sticking around isn't healthy. So in the case where I left the startup and I was in a pretty senior role, dragging it out just wouldn't have been healthy for the culture and for the team because I was disconnected at that point. Mm -hmm. And so you can have that discussion with your boss. I would say in the event that you have to work out your notice period, it, it probably is worth you saving up during that notice period enough money to be able to take a few weeks off when the when the time comes or dip into your savings. I don't think that you'll regret using a little bit of that money for that reset. And the thing is like, I'm not saying that you, the other thing is I'm not saying that you take that time to go on a massive vacation. Like mm-hmm. right now I'm, I'm not spending a lot of money. I'm just chilling and I'm going and visiting friends and I'm doing things that aren't very expensive. So it's not about going and splurging during that time. It's really just to rest and reset and connect with the people and the things that matter to you. And so you you don't need like the equivalent of probably your monthly outgoings to, you can probably get by with a little bit less. But in terms of negotiating the package, I understand that some people are in roles that, you know, critical roles, they need you until the last day, then you need to figure out how you financially set yourself up for a little bit of a break. But if you are in a project-based work or any of those kind of things, even negotiate your end date, right? So if you have that relationship with your boss or with HR, if it's a project type role that you're on, say to them, like, you know, I think I'm going to be ready to leave at the the end of this project. Like, let's have a conversation around when my actual termination date would be versus, you know, when my notice would be. I know that not all companies are as flexible, but if you don't ask and if you don't have the conversation, you don't know what they're willing to do. Yeah. And I want people at a cost of living crisis aside, recession aside, I really want people, especially young people to understand the value of that, of saving towards that three months, if possible. It's a privilege to have three months of savings in the bank. Um, And it's not just about safeguarding for you for your next job, but it's also safeguarding you as a person that if you need some time out, that you have something there. So I think it's really, it's something that I drive over and over again. I want to talk about your personal pursuits and passions. I, you are on the board for Women for Women International, and most recently, you've been appointed to the board of trustees of Sadler's Wells. Congratulations! Thank you. Uh, what do these appointments mean to you? I've always had like extracurricular activities. When I was younger and when I was in like high school, there was things like key club and student body. And I'm not going to like, I'll admit that the reason that I got into them in the first place, there's still an element of this and why I do them now 
is that they were good for the CV, right? And so as I've gotten older and more established in like my career and understanding that I've got skills that are valuable, doing these types of roles, particularly the trustee roles for nonprofit, I feel is the most impactful way that I can give back right now. Like, unfortunately, I'm not a multi multi millionaire, and I'm not able to be a huge philanthropist right now, one day, we hope. But what I do have is a powerful network, strong connections, technical skills, marketing skills, fundraising skills that can be really valuable to these organizations, often that are running on small teams, tight budgets, and need those kind of like external expertise coming in. So they're important to me because I think it's important to give back. And my time and my skills is the most valuable thing that I can give right now. And so that's kind of why I why I choose to do these types of roles currently. And when I look at the makeup of the boards that I'm on, like I do, I do try to over index on participation, you know, bringing my skills and doing a role, because I know that some other people on the board, you know, will over index on their financial contributions. Yeah, but I just think it's 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 important to give back. And also it exposes you to things that you don't get exposed to in your regular life or in your career. Like job, yeah. Problems that are really different. And I like problem solving and I like learning and, and seeing different people's experiences. And so I think it's just a really good way to also like keep your mind working and stay fresh and not just be in your in your bubble. Otherwise, I I would just be in like a, like, let's be honest, I would be in like a luxury fashion bubble, which is not very connected to the reality of the majority, right? Uh, you're also an angel investor and you work with the angel investing school to democratize and demystify the access to angel investing. How did you get started in, in angel investing? Yeah, so the angel investing Well, it actually came about because it was the first time that I had like a bit of money that I was able to angel invest. So I had sold some stock in the company that I was working for. And I took care of everything that I needed to take care of first, right? I maxed out my (laughs) pension. I maxed out my ISA. I paid down some mortgage. Like for anybody out there, like this is not financial advice, but my first financial advice would be take care of what you need to take care of first. And then there was a little bit extra that I thought it would be nice to use to support founders who aren't generally being supported. You know, we hear lots and lots of stats about how little funding goes to women, how little funding goes to Black founders. And so I really wanted to see if I could make a difference. And also because I'm angel investing at quite small ticket sizes, again, I bring my skills and my network and a bit more to the table, which a lot of early stage founders are looking for because they need, they need all the support that they can get to be out there. So angel investing is definitely not philanthropy, but my thesis as an angel investor is very much around giving the funding to founders whose companies and products I obviously believe in, but will not be getting like those bigger tickets and access to the other angels and institutional money as easily. Now that you've done a bit of angel investing and you're involved with the AIS school, what, why do you think it's so challenging for 
minority entrepreneurs to get funding? Yeah. Okay. So there's some like systemic things at play here. A lot of people who are like going out on an entrepreneurial journey, the first thing that they do is raise a very small amount of money to even get started. Right. And they raise that from friends and families. Historically, minority communities do not have friends and family members who are sitting around on even five grand, 10 grand that they can just freely give to you to start a business. Right. But maybe some of our non-minority founders do have networks that have got wealth that they can contribute. So that's the first thing is that very initial funding is like that little bit that you need to even get started isn't accessible to a lot of minority founders. Another option is to get debt funding. And again, there's a huge systemic bias against minorities when it comes to securing any kind of debt. And you may not have as many assets and collateral that you can secure that debt against because we're not sitting on piles of generational wealth. I mentioned those because the funding that you then go out to raise from like angels and institutional is the next step, right? (laughs) Minority founders aren't even able to just like start the thing or take the risk and quit their job um, in order to start the thing. And Mm. so that just, you know, that perpetuates um, snowballs further. And then the thing is, um, we just, we're just dealing with bias people trust people that look and sound like them. And so when the people with money don't look and sound like us, there's a natural bias there, which is why you have to be purposeful in seeking out the investors who are saying I'm actively investing in this, um, in underrepresented. And there's a lot more of them now, which is really, and there's a lot of angels who are really honing in on that thesis, which is, um, which is good to see. And then there, I think there's bias also in the markets that minority founders are serving. So when you are a minority founder with a product that is specifically tailored to support the minority community, you're like Mm. dealing with two layers of bias. One, you as a minority founder, and then this bias against the community that you want to serve because people want to believe that they won't buy the thing or uh have the income but there's not enough to support yeah yeah there's not enough spending dollars to support which is not actually true no. when you look at you know like hair care industry black hair care beauty you know the spending dollars in the u.s especially is coming from minority communities so it's not true just the fact that you can't afford to take the risk and that you don't have mm. some friends and family that can muddle together 50K for you to get started. And it's hard to get an angel to give you starting bucks because, you know, there's nothing to invest in yet. So we're at the part where we give us the secrets of your playbook. But <laughs> before we get to this, one of the things that I've always admired about you is that you have a great skill, an excellent skill at maintaining relationships in the workplace and building relationships. And I've struggled with the maintaining part, um, to be honest. Um, but you, you're good at both. What, how do you do this and what advice? If you're giving me advice, what Mm. advice would you do? Give me. You've made me think about this in a way that like I haven't actually ever thought about it previously. I think one of the reasons I build strong relationships in the workplace 
is I don't have a work Nina and a outside of work Nina. Like what you get is what you get. And mm. I am authentic. I am loyal. I am transparent. I am trusting. I am trustworthy. Like these are all of the things that I bring, like no matter where you see me, I can do politics, but my way of doing politics is through transparency and trust and building relationships, right? It's not through like wheeling and dealing. And and so I think that that's the reason that I build like strong relationships is I really believe that when we're at work, we're all in this together, just trying to achieve a common goal together. And so it's about trusting each other, building relationships and getting there together. One of the things that's been really funny to me is like, I've talked about, you know, in some workplaces, we're not able to work outside of the country for tax reasons. Totally makes sense, you know. And I've had people go to me, well, you're online, just don't tell them where you are. And this blows my mind. Like I cannot imagine (laughs) being on a call on a Monday morning and not telling my team about what I did over the weekend. Like it, 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 it does not compute. I'm like, what are you talking about then to your, to your, to your colleagues? Like you're just lying about the fact that you're sitting on a beach in Mexico. Like I would not be able to, I would, I would want to share it all. So I think that, you know, because I bring myself to work, it builds authentic uh, relationships. And look, the maintenance of them is simple. Put in the work, make the connections, put in the meetings, mm. go for the coffees. Like I find that part hard. And this is, I always say to mentees as well, I was like, it's your job to do the reaching out, right? Like you've got the mentor, but you reach out, you hound them every quarter for a coffee or a catch up. Cause it's not that they don't want to, they're just busy, right? Like, but you mm. make sure that it happens. That's your responsibility as the mentee. And that's what I do. That's how I have relationships still with, you know, the people that I worked for at Nessa Porte and at Farfetch is because I make sure that I reach out to them or I send them an email and update them on what's happening with me, whether they care about it or not. But it's the same with my personal relationships. I've got friendships that go back decades and they're they're super, super strong. And it's because I put in the work. It Mm. doesn't happen without that. So April... Put in the work, call the people, set up yeah. the meetings, go for the coffees. <laughs> Nina, your three strategies, your three pleas, let's hear it. Okay, so going off the back of what we just said, my first one is for strong and meaningful connections with colleagues or classmates that you feel a connection with, right? Like you're doing it authentically. But if you meet someone in these environments that you're really like, oh, I get you and I like you and you challenge me, you help me grow, or we just have a good laugh, um, you know, talking about other people at the water cooler or wherever it may be, forge those connections and maintain them. Not just for like career progression, but because these are the people that genuinely see you and they're going to be your advocates, your sounding board, your coach when you need them in the future, the people that pull you out of a rut when you need to, and the people that cheer you on when, um, or push you a little bit harder when you need that. So forge meaningful connections. My second one is mentor and give back because I just think you learn so much about yourself by mentoring others and exposing yourself to 
industries and communities that aren't what you do on a day-to-day basis. It just keeps you learning, keeps you growing. Having mentees and advising like founders and startups is the best way to stay up to speed on what every what's happening, what the latest technology is, what the latest thinking is coming down the track. And so it's a it's a win-win. And then the final one, which we didn't talk about that much, but learn about yourself. Do the self-work. Do the personal slash professional development. I thought it was all BS for a really long time. I didn't grow up in a household that talked about, you know, feelings and, and, and didn't dig deep. And now I realize that how much of the behaviors that we exhibit and what we are expecting and how we're um, reacting to things at work are rooted in our personal things. And so start doing the work, start learning about yourself, do the self-development. And then also, you know, my thing about maintaining connections, you can kind of, we can coach each other. It doesn't take like huge Mm. amount of skill to be able to coach each other and ask, you know, leading questions and things like that. So you can learn a bit of that and be not therapists, but you can help each other a little bit uh, once you've learned some foundational skills. I wish that I had started on that journey in my 20s rather than my 30s. It's such a revelation. It was such a revelation for me, and it's so important. People are probably tired of hearing me talk about it, but it is so important that you be aware, learn about those initial relationships that you have growing up because you bring those to work. You are looking at your boss and you don't realize that the programming in the back of your mind from home is actually playing it's playing out in the way that you relate to him, her, or they. And, you know, your frustration might just lie in you sitting down and journaling and, and trying to figure it out and, you know, getting some therapy. And unfortunately, people are now, it's now a privilege to be in therapy, to be able to afford it. But I hope that, you know, companies and organizations uh, try to offer that a bit more in, you know, in alternative ways. And my last question for you is, what does success mean to you the next 20 years of your life? What what hopes and dreams are you, Nina, driving towards? It's such a different answer than I would have given 10 years ago. 10 years ago, my answer would have probably been like a role at a company, right? Like that was what success looked like to me. Now success to me looks like balance. That's always giving me the opportunity to, to learn. But balance is the most important thing to me. And it's really, it's really striking me. Like now, as I'm looking at roles and what's coming next, I'm not interested in anything that will take my life out of balance. I'm not interested in anything that means I can't sleep eight hours a night. I'm not interested in anything (laughs) that means I can't go to the gym in the morning. So it's just making it all work in the way that you want it to work. For some people, that will be over-indexing on the work, right? Because they they love it and that drives them and their identity is in their work. I am not that person. So for me, it's about success is when I feel balanced that the work isn't consuming my entire life. Thank you for taking the time out today to talk to me. And my plan in the future is to run something on angel investing and I hope you can get involved, but we'll talk about that. So. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, April, for being part of that support system at the times that I've needed you. Oh, you're welcome, friend. Anytime. 
My takeaway from Nina is that unlike the advice of our parents, it's really important to build in periods of rest in your career, especially when you consider that we'll be working well into our 60s and for the younger generations, possibly longer. I recognize that taking a break is a privilege, and my hope is that women everywhere will be able to access this privilege at various points in their careers. To learn more about Nina, you can visit us on Instagram at Meet Pursuit. Check the show notes for more information about all our guests and the Meet Pursuit community. On the next episode, I'll be joined by Dr. Martina Tobi, a sexual health and menopause specialist advocating for women of all shades. Pursuit was produced by Iwan Obinyan, production assistant Adida Mola Bashamon, with production by II Studios. Thank you so much for listening.